0: Have you ever heard someone say, you know, you need to pray because prayer really works. But should Christians really be saying that? Prayer really works. Does prayer work? Most people, when they say that, mean, yeah, you know what? God did what I wanted him to do. But God is not some cosmic genie who is sitting there at our beck and call to do whatever we've asked him to do. He's not some vending machine where you just push a button that releases what we want. Now it's been said that prayer is not a button to be pushed, but a relationship to be pursued. But there are scores of people, both inside and outside the church, whose spirits are crushed because they prayed and their prayer didn't seem to work. They prayed fervently and they didn't get the job. The person that they loved died. Their child was born without a heartbeat or a loved one ended up in a car crash that left them permanently disabled. And so when we say prayer uh, doesn't work because we didn't get what we wanted, we don't understand prayer. We know that there are supernatural things that happen when we pray. And we can all affirm this because we know we serve an awesome and mighty God. But often in the ways that it happens, we can't understand or even discover how it actually works. There have been a multitude of saints across the centuries that have been shocked to see prayer reduced to a, God is doing what I asked him to do when I wanted him to do it. You see we can't treat God as though he's a puppy to be be trained. We can't look at God as a short order cook in a kitchen who prepares food at every whim and the way we want it prepared. I was just talking to Tyler before the service and he mentioned seeing someone who a famous preacher said when we pray, it unlocks blessings. Folks, that's heresy. God is a sovereign God of creation. But I think that Christians can take consolation in the fact that when we pray, we often don't know what to pray for or even how to pray. But that's okay. Because the Holy Spirit will translate that into something that will please God. And so we need to pour our hearts out to God. We need to pray about things. We need to pray the scripture so that our heart is in line with God's heart. And when things go our way, we praise God and we're grateful And when things don't go our way, we come to the point where we understand that God is still very much in control and God loves you as his child. But you see, just because God is silent doesn't mean that God is absent. I can't believe how many times that I hear, even sometimes from pastors, they start to say things to me and they said, well, God told me to fill in the blank. You know, the longer that I follow Christ, the more hesitant I am when I hear that someone tells me God told them something specific. I also notice that they are Outraged, if you question that. You know, when I hear someone claiming that God told them to do something, I feel like saying, God told you to do that? Really? God Himself spoke to you directly and told you specifically to buy something or do something or or whatever it is? Wow. Scripture tells us what we need to do. Scripture tells us how we need to live. I mean, you get this feeling. I prayed and I got this feeling. Folks, how do you know that's not last night's pizza? How do you know that that feeling that you had wasn't just something that that little voice in your head told you to do or something that you just wanted to do. I love when someone says, if you want to hear the voice of God, read Scripture. If you want to hear it audibly, read it out loud. If you believe that God will speak to you audibly, you're dying, denying the fact of the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. What we find, we find in Scripture. God doesn't need to reveal whether you need to buy this car or this house. or to, You can pray about those things, but that will be revealed through your desire to please God. And we have to also be careful. Because if we think that we heard God in an audible voice, you need to ask yourself, was it really God? Or was it the angel of darkness pretending to be an angel of light? You see, if God spoke to you in an authoritative way, and it goes against Scripture, you're denying the Word of God. So what should we say when someone says, God told me. Well, you could say something like this. Based on what I know from Scripture, I believe this is the best, boldest, wisest course of action. You see, that makes sense. Because you can sit there and go, I had this struggle, I prayed, and this is what I've, I believe I should do, and Scripture upholds that. The thing is, we have to be careful we don't pull the God card just to justify something that we want to do. You know, when someone says, yeah, but God told me. Do you know what they're doing? They're shutting down conversation. They're shutting you up to where if God told me, I actually had someone come in my office one time and said, God told me to do this. What do you think? <laughs> Are you kidding? Like, I, God told you and you're asking me? You're nuts. I'm not going to tell you What God, uh, something that God already told you to do. If God told you to do it, do it. We need to understand, though, that there sometimes can be something that happens that causes me to be emotional. Something that causes me to understand the presence of God more. But in that, we have to realize that it's not because he is there more, because he is everywhere. And God did not make us emotionless. He made us to where we can feel those things. We have a sense of emotion. But God is just as present on our worst days as he is on our best days. He is just as present when we are uneasy as when we are calm, as when we are hurting, as when we are strong. But what if our relationship with Christ was grounded deeply on the character of God and less on the constantly shifting circumstances around us? Just think what would happen then. Well, as we continue in our study through the Gospel of Mark, we come to this very moving scene where Christ pours out his soul in prayer to the Father. And this is a very profound text and it gives us insight into the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It also gives us insight about our own spiritual apathy and lethargy. But the main point here is the Son's sorrow over what is about to happen. And yet, He is submissive to the Father's will. And that's really what I want us to see. Firstly, the Son's sorrow. Secondly, the Son's submission. And finally, uh, we'll see about the spiritual apathy that can happen with those who follow Christ. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to our text. It's found in Mark chapter 14. And we'll be specifically looking at verses 32 through 42. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrow, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know What to answer him. Then he came a third time and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so here we see Jesus is with the eleven. They had just left Jerusalem and crossed the Kidron Valley. They went to a place on the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. That is a compound word. The word geth means to press. To press. The word Semane means oil. And it likely refers to the pressing of oil from the Mount of Olives. Literally, the translation would be the garden of the oil press. And I think it's interesting. There's, there's about eight olive trees that are still there that could have easily been the ones that the Lord saw. But here, Gethsemane was probably a picture of the suffering that the Lord would face, the agony, the pressing, the suffering. John described this as being a garden garden. And that's in John 18.1. Apparently Judas knew this place because he had gone there many times. And that's where Judas knew he would find Jesus. And so in verse 32, we see that Jesus told the group of disciples to sit while he prayed. But then he took the three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. Now, I think here's a point that I want to... point out, it has some interest um, in regards to the events pertaining Christ's death. The number three seems to be a very critical number, and I have uh, these listed out. The first one is, Jesus takes three disciples. Secondly, Jesus prays three times. Third, Jesus finds his disciples sleeping three times. Fourth, Peter denies Christ three times. Fifth, Pilate asked the crowd three questions about uh, Christ three times. The sixth one is Christ's crucifixion is broken down into three time intervals, the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour. And then seventh, Christ would rise from the dead on the third day. The number three is, just can't be a coincidence and I think it's crucial because the number three is the number of the Trinity everything was done here with all three members of the Godhead the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit but here you have the three inner circle the privileged three Peter, James, and John. Spurgeon used to say that the 12 disciples were the elect out of the elect. I guess you could say Peter, James, and John were the elect out of the elect out of the elect. But if you remember, they've been very presumptuous. And I think that's the reason Jesus wanted them with him. They made some pretty bold claims about their allegiance to Christ. And they made some very bold requests of him. And as they reflected on these things later, it would be very humbling for them to realize how weak their commitment was to Christ and that they deserved really nothing from him. But I hope you don't misread this. Jesus is not taking these three along because they're going to be a great encouragement to them. That should have been the case. But because of their spiritual lethar- lethargy and confusion, they're going to sleep. And Jesus knows that they will. But see, this is a lesson for us and for them. It was would be humbling to realize that we who belong to Jesus and have this stellar commitment to Him, sometimes we choose not to do what we ought to be doing. Sometimes we have good intentions that we don't follow through on. And so these three guys, Jesus chooses to keep close to him while he prays. If their claim was for real, they would have been able to stay awake and pray with him at least an hour, right? But they can't because the flesh is weak, the will is fickle. And so at the end of verse 33, it says, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. That's because their eyes, both physically and spiritually, are heavy. And all this contributes to the son's sorrow in the moment because he's realizing he is... Totally alone. These men who had given them lip service to their commitment to him. In the moment of crisis, they're asleep. The word troubled is the word ademeneo. And it speaks of deep emotional anxiety and trouble. This is actually the strongest word in the Greek for depression deep distress and actually that word deep distress is the next word <clears throat> it's the word ekthambeto and it means to be thrown into terror or amazement to be thoroughly alarmed the reason for this overwhelming emotion and distress was because Jesus knew that his death was nearing. He knew that he was going to die on the cross for sinners. Now, had it only been the death, it would have been like the rest of us. We would sit there and think of death. Well, I'm going to heaven. This is great. I want to stay here, but if that's what's going to happen, that's wonderful. But that wasn't Christ's death at all. Because he was about to take on himself the full brunt of our sin, and therefore the full brunt of God's wrath. And this means that there would be a moment when he would be separated from his father. And this is something that had never happened before to him and never would happen again. It's clear that as Jesus was walking with these apostles, that he was experiencing, as one commentator said, acute emotional distress. Nowhere else is this distress described in such vivid terms. And so we read in verse 34. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. This was a very low emotional moment. And he said that his soul was deeply grieved even to the point of death. Now that exceedingly sorrowful, again, is just a one word in the Greek. It's, Pariapos, and it means totally engulfed, totally surrounded by sadness and grief. It almost has the hint of something being underwater to where there is nothing that is away from the water. It is totally engulfing him. And emotionally speaking, we could say he's at his lowest point. I think the point is, as Jesus contemplates becoming the vicarious atonement for our sins, as he contemplates that he will stand in the place of judgment for his children, that this isn't just going home for him. It's, it's something that's going to be far from who he is, far from anything natural to him. He's going to take on our sin. He's going to bear the weight of sin. And that's radically opposite of who he is as the holy and righteous and sinless son of God. He's going to carry this. In less than 24 hours from now, he's going to be hanging on the cross, bearing the sin of the world and suffering and agony and separation from his heavenly father. So the Bible text literally is saying here in verse 34, he is overwhelmed to the point of death. As a matter of fact, his whole life, at least from the moment of his his earthly ministry, about three and a half years, was a season of suffering. It was a a burden-bearing life, even though it was sinless. Because religious authorities called him a sinner and a blasphemer and even... The devil, he did so many things that showed that he was anything but that. He met the needs of so many people and healed so many sick and fed the hungry. He taught wisdom to the masses. But now practically everyone has fallen away. And by the time he's condemned and crucified, they all will. They will fall away. He has never had anything in this this material world. He had a rock for his pillow and the stars for a roof. And now the religious authorities plan to even take his life and knowing that Judas was going to betray him, I think it's amazing that Jesus still showed love for him. He allowed Judas to sit by his side. He fed him. He washed Judas' feet. And yet while he's here in the garden in agony of great burden, he's just waiting to meet with Judas and his other enemies. You see, Jesus as a human faced all the earthly sufferings and they had to be weighing heavily on him. But there was infinitely more here than just human sufferings or earthly type of sufferings. In verse 35 of our text, it tells us that he went a little further and fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. I think this is the picture that the Lord's burden is so great and intense that he finally said, I can't be around you anymore. Even Peter, James, and John. I have to leave you my closest. Maybe... In his humanity, there's a practical lesson here. That there are times where some valleys and burdens are so deep that we just have to spend time absolutely alone with our Heavenly Father. Some crevices and innermost part of our soul that just can only be laid, laid bare before the one who wholly and unconditionally loves us. Verse 35 in this great burden, says he fell on the ground. This doesn't mean he dropped to his knees. This means he's laying prostrate on the ground, his face in the dirt. I believe our Lord is overwhelmed by the curse. The curse that he knew he would become for those who who he would stand in place of. And Jesus began by saying, if this were possible, the hour might pass from him. And the hour that he's referring to is the hour of his his crucifixion. What Jesus is saying is, if there's any other way to save sinners, Lord, if there's any other plan that could be devised, Let this pass. Folks, because Jesus was willingly walking through the darkness of the garden, which was his valley of shadow of death, it's because he did that we know he's with us in our lives in Psalm 23 it talks about his rod and his staff comforting us and by the way that val- valley of shadow of death it really doesn't read that in the hebrew it's really in the hebrew is the valley of deepest darkest sorrows it's not impending death it's it's a a darkness it's talking about sheep And sheep don't understand death. They understand entering a dark valley that can be extremely dangerous. The whole idea here is that the shepherd holds the scepter of sovereignty, having been raised and ascended to the right hand of God. Through the gospel, the darkness is turned to light. And because of his darkest hour and because of his God-forsaken moment, the Bible says... He will never leave us nor forsake us. We are his saved sheep. And the good shepherd stood where we should stand. He stood where we should have stood in our place and dying as a willing substitute. Here we see the reality that there are two natures of Christ. The two natures are united in this perfect way. They're not confused. They're not mixed. They're not divided. The reformers used to say Christ was vera homo, vera deus. Truly man, truly God. In other words, two natures, one person. They're not separate. And the Incarnation tells us that the Son of God did not in any way give up any of his attributes of deity. Jesus did not stop being divine when he took on human flesh, though he chose not to use some of his divine attributes. Nor did the Son of God fail to experience humanity and things that mark true humanity. The limitations of knowledge of certain things, the the full use of his his divine power, and so in this we are to see a perfect unity between the two natures of God, the two natures of Christ. They're not mixed. They're not divided. They're not separated but they are to be distinguished. And yet, in all of that, we are probably confused when we read this because it's still a mystery. How can this be? Folks, we will never understand the incarnation, the two natures of Christ. And if you're confused, join the club. That's sort of the point, though. You can't figure God out. I can't figure God out. No one can. But there's enough in Scripture to be able to be clear about who God is. The fact is, Christ's divine nature never stops being divine. His human nature never stops being human. Jesus is not here with us physically now. He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. He is sitting there, in the fullness of his humanity, but he's also there in the fullness of his deity, and he's with us here because he is spirit, because Jesus is God and God is everywhere. And one of the benefits of this tension surrounding these two natures is that Jesus uh, allows us to identify with him or Maybe better put, it allows God to identify with us. That's the point of the incarnation. If you'd please turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 15 and 16. Hebrews chapter 4. Starting with verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And here comes the therefore statement. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right there, folks, we see the practical tension of the two natures of Christ. His ability to sympathize in our weakness as humanity is set before us. And so from the standpoint of His humanity, Jesus is troubled and distressed. And he pours out his soul to the Father in an emotional articulation and expression of words and prayer. But you see, our emotional articulation in our prayers needs to be balanced with the second thing. And that is doctrinal affirmation. The first attribute of prayer life is modeled after Jesus Uh, after Jesus is what we describe as an emotional articulation of the soul. And you see the second attribute is found in verses 35 and 36. Yes, there is an emotional articulation from the soul, verses 32 through 34. But then there's a doctrinal affirmation of God's will Jesus is really teaching us that effective prayer always finds one's will lost in God's perfect will. And that was Jesus' perspective. He's affirming doctrine here. And that is the will of God. As horrific as it was, Jesus knew down deep that this was the only way. The cross was the way that was the perfect plan of the triune God before the foundation of the world. And so we read in verse 35, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus did know God's secret providence and yet, from the standpoint of humanity, he's praying that if God could do it, if God was able, that he would remove the cup. But that is why verse 36 is important, because it provides more specific words of God's or Christ's petition. In 35 in general, if it is possible for this hour to pass, and then we see in verse 36 an insight into more detail. We see something here that in this simple plea, Jesus says, all things are possible for you. He talks about God's sovereignty. Everything is under the control of God. And then he makes the request that if it be possible, the Father would remove this cup. Here's proper theology and prayer. All things are possible for God. We need to think that way when we pray. We need to think about the perspective of God's sovereignty. Even when we pray for someone who is terminally ill, up until the last moment, we cry out and we say, Heal them, O Lord. Perform a miracle on them, O God. Even if we truly believe from our our frailness and humanity that the Lord that might not be the Lord's will, we know that all things are possible. Even when we know it probably won't happen, we do this because we get to understand a sense of what God's will is. We get a sense of His secret providence, we sit there and we go, Lord, I'm not really sure why this happened, but I know it happened all to Your glory. It happened exactly like You would have it happen. And what is happening here is the Son of God is acknowledging the sovereignty and supremacy of God the Father over all things. But all along, Jesus knew. He talked about his death. He knew that was his mission. And it says he set his face like flint toward the cross. He took that from Isaiah 50, verse 7. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know I will not be ashamed. The sorrowful son affirms his prayer that the Father is all-powerful and omnipotent. He can do whatever pleases him. He has the power to do anything and Jesus calls out to him in an intimate way by saying, Abba, Father, This reveals to us the relationship between the Father and the Son, the closeness of the relationship. This is beyond comprehension. There is an infinite happiness within the fellowship of the Trinity. You think about that. From eternity, the Trinity has always been and has always been together. There is an infinite love between the Father and the Son. And so here, Christ is honoring him as Father. He knows he is God's Son, and God the Father is his Father. Mark is really the only Gospel writer that mentions these words. The Apostle Paul uses it twice. If you would turn to Romans 8.15. Romans 8, verse 15. And I want you to see something here. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of what? Of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. God now has proclaimed He is our Father. He has adopted us into His family. There is now this intimate family bond. Remember, we were not His, and we were made His. We were enemies of God, and now we have been adopted into his family. And so if you would please turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. This just builds on this. And and actually, I, I believe it's 7 as well. And because you are sons, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You so often hear, that Abba Father is Daddy. You hear this all the time, even from very great uh, preachers. I did a lot of research. I did not find one single commentator from back years ago that said that. They said, this is is saying it's more in the lines of you are an actual caring loving father and the spirit of god that enables us to read uh, realize god the father gives us this staggering relationship this this relationship that actually allows us to have intimate fellowship With a holy God. Jesus knew this. He was overwhelmed in his glory. And even revealed his shame. He was perfect and sinless and undefiled. He would take upon God's wrath. He would drink it down as the perfect son of God. It's almost impossible to put into words the type of physical and emotional and spiritual stress and anxiety that Jesus would have faced. You know, you you think about, have you ever had... Times of just intense anxiety, experience the crushing weight of a panic attack or a nervous situation. If you have, you're in good company. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with with us in this weakness. Yet, he is without sin. He has been there, and he's in your garden of grief. That's the whole point. Except it was far worse for him being separated from the Father. As the psalmist says in Psalm seventy five, eight. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So you ask, why is he praying? If it be possible? If there was any other way? This was a cup reserved for sinners. Not the spotless holy lamb of God. God of which there is only one. And in spite of the horrors of the cross, Paul tells us in Philippians 2:8 that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus was cursed so that we could be blessed. He was crushed so we could be saved. He was condemned so we could be justified. And then continuing with verse 37, it says, Then he came and found them sleeping and said, Peter, Simon, said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? After Jesus had prayed, he got up and went back to the three, found them sleeping. The guys who promised that they would never fail him, never let him down. And their failure is already underway. Jesus woke them up. And then he specifically addresses Peter. And if you remember, Peter is relaying this to Mark. And then Mark writes this this, uh, gospel. Peter is the one who made all these emotional promises and claims that he would always be there and always loyal to Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus woke him up and said, Could you not watch for one hour? That indicates the fact that Jesus had been praying at least one hour, pouring out his soul to the Father while Peter and the others were sleeping. But if you know, if you notice, you is singular, aimed straight at Peter. And what does he call Peter? Simon. That's a subtle rebuke because that was his pre-conversion name. He wasn't acting like Peter, Petros. He's acting like his old self. So he's actually rebuking Peter. And Peter has no problem telling this to work. He knows it doesn't even make him look like a real great spiritual giant at all. But I think what you find is great people of God see themselves honestly and see themselves as anything but great. They will say that greatness is found in the Lord. And when we read verse 38, here's another gentle rebuke. Watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The the word watch there is the Greek word gregoria. And it means to give strict attention to, to be cautious and active, lest through remission and indolence some destructive calamity would overtake you. But how do you avoid that except through prayer? I think Jesus means more than just physical staying alert. He's telling them to spiritually stay alert. Peter later understood this. He understood Jesus was not just merely talking about physical alertness, and spirit, but spiritual alertness as well. Because he instructs the church how to pray in 1 Peter 5.8. He says, Be sober minded, be watchful. And he goes on to say, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter's write, writing out this experience because he was in the, the garden with Christ, but the devil was there. That lion was there. Peter failed where Christ succeeded. And one of the reasons Jesus succeeded from a human standpoint is that He was praying to the Father. And I think that's something that we need to understand. Prayer is a critical key to victory. It's a critical key not to succumb to temptation. Staying alert in the Word praying and then in verses 39 and 40 it says again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words and when he had returned he found them sleeping again for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him here i think mark sort of takes up for them Remember Peter is the eyewitness source, and so much could be say be said about this, but Mark says for their eyes were heavy it's cutting them a break they're tired, they're emotionally tired, they're physically tired, and it says they did not know what to answer. This is a time where their lack of prayer turned. Into deep sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. And they had maintained that they would never be disloyal to Christ. But that was said outside of the flesh. Here in the flesh, their eyes were heavy. They were not alert. Instead of praying, they were sleeping. They were trusting the flesh. They were sleeping instead of praying it's hard not to affirm that they understood what Jesus was praying for and they understood what Jesus was going to do. I think so often we can come to prayer and we can have this uh, hyper-Calvinist moment where we go, well, you know, Jesus prayed, remove this cup, but God already ordained That hour to come, Jesus was going to die and was going to suffer. And so we just sort of stumble in with our prayers and we get lazy and we start to go, well, you know, if God's sovereign, it's going to happen anyway. Jesus never viewed it that way. That is wrong. Instead, he prayed, trusting in God's sovereignty. He prayed for God's will and yet seek, seeking direction. And at the end of verse 40, it says, And they did not know how to answer him. There was sort of a guilty silence. That sort of reminded me of Job 40. Remember that? Job chapter forty. If you'd please turn there, I think this is interesting. In verse in chapter thirty nine, it just talks about basically. Do you know the time when wild mountain goats bear young, or can you make, uh, can you mark when the deer gives birth, or number the months that they fulfill? He asks all these things. Do you know can you bind the wild oxen will you trust his strength or give him great strength God is saying I've set all of this before you I am sovereign I make those things happen and then in verse 40 or chapter 40 Look at what it says, starting with verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice but I will proceed no further. Hmm. So here, he's, he's basically saying, okay, God, I'll shut up. Verse 7. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Now that you know the truth... You're not going to be quiet. Now you're going to speak because you know I am the Lord your God. You see, these guys didn't know how to answer. They didn't know when they started to see this stuff come. And you sit there and you go, huh? Well, I don't know how to pray. I try to pray, but I don't pray as often as I should. You know what? Cry out to God. I want to suggest that it's in the moments of faithlessness. In the moments that we don't feel like praying, those are the moments we should be praying. There are signs to us that we need to be introducing ourselves to God in prayer. Prayer is hard work. Desperate prayer is even harder. That's Jesus' point. Watch me, I'm praying. You didn't watch, you failed. You succumbed to temptation. I prayed, I had victory. And so in verse verses 41 and 42, we read, Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Right in the middle of the second half of verse 41, it says it is enough. They're they're still sleeping, sleeping and resting. Jesus is agonizing in His soul. And He's saying, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. That's the word apakal. That phrase means paid in full. In other words, I've done all I can do. And there's two parts to that. There's no need to rebuke you guys anymore. Time's up. You're going to pray... If you're going to pray and watch, you would have already done it. There's no more time. It's it's enough. It's fu- The time is fulfilled. And the second thing is, I've already prayed through this. I've already won the victory. I'm honoring my duty. Honoring my Father's will. I will perform the duties of the Christ. It's all set. Let's get going. The Lord struggled through the dark strain of Gethsemane and He came out the other side, committed to His duties as the Christ, which included the cross whereupon He would purchase redemption for His children. Why did He do it? first of all, for his own glory. As he performs the Father's will and purchases redemption for the church, he will be honored and glorified for the wisdom and the beauty and the power of that all for eternity. Secondly, and wonderfully important for both you and I, he did it because of God's unrelenting love for his children. His unrelenting love for his children. And in verse 42, the victory of this thing just flat out overwhelms me. Just to pray, fair, paraphrase verse 42, it's get up, let's get going. I'm heading to the cross. And even lazy, sleepy, unfaithful companions aren't going to get in my way. Let's go. The Father's perfect plan unfolds. The path to the cross and the children's redemption include Judas' betrayal and Christ's enemies arresting him. And that's what he says. See, my betrayer, is at hand. This pictures is his total resolve to the Father's will. He will yield to his enemies because in yielding to his enemies, he defeats his children's enemies. This is the path that must be taken for the children of God to be saved. And so Jesus reports for duty he's faithful to his duty he performs and honors the plan and fulfills it perfectly he will be arrested he will be condemned he will be crucified he will rise again out of the uh, God's unrelenting love for his children folks we always have victory and always have hope. We always have assurance because he fulfilled his duty. He walked steps toward Judas and others because his prayer elicited a holy resolve to do the Father's will. That's what prayer does. It strengthens us by the Holy Spirit to see the will of God in our lives, to walk on that path and walk toward it with resolve and resolution and commitment to the will of the Father. Prayer makes us resolve to do God's will. Thomas Watson, a great Puritan, said prayer is not for God's information. Oh no, prayer is for the creature's submission. It's for us to understand God's will, to understand and embrace His plan, to understand His will for our lives. And that's exactly what Christ did. We need to trust and commit to greater prayer. Greater prayer for greater holiness, for walking in the newness of life, and pray for the, to be able to walk in the way that He has predestined us to do so. It's been predestinated that we will do it, but God requires us through prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit to pray that God will enable us to do it, to have the pattern and and habit and discipling in greater holiness. I don't know about you, but have you ever prayed the Psalms? It's beautiful. Please turn to Psalm fifty two. Psalm fifty two. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place. And uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous also shall see and fear. And shall laugh at him saying. Here is a man who did not make God his strength. But trusted in the abundance of his riches. And strengthened him in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree. In the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. That's my God. That's your God. That's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To say this, prayer itself is only one expression of our obedience. And so we watch and pray as not to fall into temptation. We do this and we seek to live His will and obey Him, not merely by praying it, but following through with our prayers. How we need to live. And you know what? Prayers are marked with emotional articulation from the soul. But we balance those prayers, like I said, with doctrinal affirmation, with what has been revealed in Scripture as God's will for our lives. It all goes together. And if we pray the way Jesus prayed, we will find that we will look more and more like Christ in our own lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Scripture. It reveals to us in no uncertain terms not only the importance of prayer, but the blessed quality of prayer. We thank You that we have modeled before us the two natures of Christ, the two natures in one person. You didn't merely have a humanized divine nature or a deified human nature. Jesus has two distinct natures. We don't understand that. There's a mystery to it, but we do know this, that as our great high priest, he sympathizes with us. He became like us so that we could relate to our great high priest, so that in times of despair, we would call out to him, knowing that he hears us, knowing that you, Father, hear us because we come in his name. We have but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so we pray all of this in his most glorious and precious name, amen.